Take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. We are finishing out our series that we have been walking, walking through over the last seven weeks of the seven I Am statements of Jesus in the book of John. We've watched as He has reminded us again and again of who He is. So I have a conversation with one of our, our church members a couple of weeks ago as we were in the midst of this series. And they were just telling me, you know, it's really fascinating to think of it from that viewpoint that our world has lots to say about who Jesus is. People describe him in a lot of ways. People talk about Jesus more than any other human being that has ever walked the earth. And yet it is refreshing to stop and to take a look over the last seven weeks at what Jesus said about himself. This isn't what other people are declaring about Jesus. This is what Jesus is declaring about himself. And so as we look at that today, I want to just take a quick moment to refresh our memory over what we have done over the last few weeks. And as he's talked over the last few weeks, we have heard about the fact that Jesus is the one that satisfies forever. The literal manna of God that gives us our daily sustenance. He is the bread of life. We've learned that Jesus is the one that forms the formless and chases the darkness and fills the void of our lives. He is the light of the world. We've learned that He is the true gateway, the gateway to legitimacy and to life. He is the door. We learned that He is the one that lays down His life for the sheep, that meets our every need, that restores us and guides us and protects us and fills us and gives us eternal life. He is the good shepherd. We have learned that He turns sickness into stories and tears into testimonies and death into life. He is the resurrection and the life. And we have learned that He is the way to healing, the way to help, and the way home. He is the way the truth, and the life. And as we come to today, we come to the last of the I Am statements, and it's found in John chapter 15, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, He removes and He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. 
And you are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he will give you. This is what I command you. Love one another. As we come to this passage, a couple of things to keep in mind. First of all, what is going on in the history of the moment? This is the Upper Room Discourse. It is moments after what we did last week. Uh, I know for us there's been a week delay, but for them it would have been a few minutes between what he said in chapter, uh, when he talked about being the way, the truth, and life in chapter 14 and what is happening in chapter 15 with his next I am statement. And just to remind you, this is literally hours before he will be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and buried. Within 24 hours of him saying this, by our best understanding of the timeline, he will be in a tomb, buried, having been betrayed by one of his closest apostles, being tried in a shock and all kind of false mock trial with lots of false accusations in which he basically doesn't defend himself and allows it to happen, will be crucified the most intense form of death you could imagine and then buried in a tomb. Now again, we know the end of that story. Next Sunday is Easter. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But for these disciples, he realizes what is coming in the next little bit. He also realizes that one of their own is going to betray them. We mentioned last week that Peter is going to deny him. That all of them, except for John, who's going to stick a little closer, almost everyone else will scatter away. And in these last few moments, he is giving them the final instructions before he leaves earth. Now, just so you know, the reason that this is such an important passage for them is because of the literary context of the idea of the vine. You see, in the Old Testament, the vine was a picture of Israel. In the book of Psalms, in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Hosea, particularly in Psalm 80, there's a cry for God to restore the vine, the Israel, to its rightful place. That says in Psalm 80 that he took a vine from one place in Egypt and he planted it in the promised land and now it is withering and it is being destroyed. And the point almost every time in the Old Testament when it talks about this vine is that Israel is the vine and they are not doing what God has called them to do. And as a result, there is fruitlessness, there is no fruit on the vine, and it is withering away. And there is call after call to restore the vine, restore your nation, restore it. And Jesus here is speaking to his disciples and their understanding of the Messiah was that he was going to come in and he was going to restore the nation of Israel to its rightful place. He was going to restore the vine and that's what it was all about. And Jesus stops in the midst of this and says to them, I am not here to restore the ancient Israel to its place 
as a power in a national sense. It is not Israel the vine I am here to restore. I am the vine. That this mission is not about a nation, it's about me. Well, why are they worried about that? Because people in his inner circle, the apostles and the disciples, truly believed that Jesus was in the process of retaking what was to be Israel and that he was going to lead it. Remember when uh, the disciples asked him, hey, when you come into your glory, when you get there, um, what are our jobs going to be? Can, can we, can we be, mom wants us to ask, um, can we be right there with you? Right? Remember there's an argument on this night? There's an argument about who's the greatest and who's not? Like, and Jesus is like, what are you talking, Jesus has to get up and wash their feet? Because apparently they're arguing over who is the one that ought to be washing their feet and who ought to be in different places. And so they thought, you know what? Jesus is going to take over and we're going to be right there with him. And maybe it's this week. He's been talking about this week. And then he starts to change the conversation about the fact that he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be arrested and he's going to be killed. And they're like, wait a minute, Jesus, what about restoring the vine? What about restoring Israel? What about restoring what we have? What about the political aspirations? And Jesus is like, that ain't it, guys. I am the true vine. It's about me. It's not about a geopolitical nation. It's about me. Aren't you glad the church is done with all that political stuff? Jesus' point that he's making to these disciples is, listen, there are going to be some things in the next 24, 48 hours that are going to test your faith, that you're going to require yourself to walk through. And as he talks to them, he is telling them, this isn't about restoring the kingdom of Israel as it was imagined during the time of David and Solomon. This is about bringing radical change into the lives of people and establishing the kingdom of God on this earth. It is not about Israel the vine. It is about me, the true vine. And he gives them two or three kind of instructions in the midst of that. Really one instruction that is for all of us. And then a couple that come off of that. And the first instruction that he gives us is that they are to remain in him. Now, did you notice, I know you all know that that a lot of times when when we have scripture up on the screen here that we'll, I'll highlight certain words that are kind of important for us to know in yellow. Did you notice there was a word in blue this time? Somebody let me know you did. All right. That was a lot of work to get that to blue. All right. Was, did you notice there was a word in blue? All right. What was the word in blue? Remain. Right. Remain is used 11 times in those verses I just read. It's used a bunch in the New Testament. It's never used as condensed in time as it is there. It's used a lot. Verse 4 has it three times. Another verse has it two times. But 11 times remain is used in the midst of that. And his one real command to them throughout this whole thing is remain. So I guess the question becomes, what does that mean? Well, it seems like it would just be self-explanatory. Remain means remain. But that word actually means stay or dwell 
or hold on to. So again, let's remember where we are in the midst of the story of Jesus. He is about to be betrayed, arrested, crucified, and he tells his disciples, hold on. Stay, remain, don't give up, keep fighting, keep going. Remember what I've told you, you've already gotten the words he tells them. You've been made clean, you've got the words, you know it, you understand, you believe. Keep believing, stay with me is another way to say this. Remain with me, keep going. He is talking to them as one who knows the end from the beginning. He is talking to them as someone who understands that they are about to go through the most difficult couple of days in their lives. And he is telling them, don't give up now. Don't leave now. Stay. Remain. Keep living in what we've done. Look at verse 4, the way he says it. Remain in me and I in you. I will not tell you how much has been written about what that means. But I'll tell you what I think it means. I think it means that don't forget, I'm always going to be here. I will be a part of your life. If you remain in me, you have access to everything you need for this world. If you dwell, stay, keep going with me, I will provide what you need. Remain in me and I in you. Just as the branch is unable to produce fruit by itself. By the way, this is an interesting little thing. When they're talking here, they're probably talking about grapevines. And the branches where the grapes would come off... But the branches were fragile and had to be connected to the vine for anything to do. They, if they got broken from the vine, they were dead. Yesterday, we, we, I mowed the yard. Um, because, you know, it, it's been spring and winter off and on for like six weeks now, right? And so, like, I've got, uh, I don't have grass growing. I've got lots of onions and wildflowers and other stuff, because I don't have as beautiful a yard as some of you may have, but I mowed the yard yesterday, and as I started mowing the yard, one of the things I noticed, there were branches everywhere. From the storm we had, blowing around, there were just branches everywhere. And so, I actually noticed last night, my neighbor who has more yards, more more trees than I do, had branches everywhere, and what I understood, and what I, I realized is, that the branches that were fallen were so thin and frail, they weren't even good to like keep a fire going. They were just good to get it started. Right? We call that kindling. They're not really going to give you warmth. They're just the things to get it started. They're the so small and insignificant. And he's not saying that, hey, you have to live an insignificant life. His point is, without being connected to the vine, without being connected to Jesus, You have no use or purpose to bear fruit. Remain in me and I in you, just as the branch is unable to produce by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither you unless you remain in me. So what does it mean to remain in Jesus? Well, there are three pictures that are in this passage that I think show us what it means to remain in Him. First of all, people that remain in Christ are connected to Him. What I mean here is not a connection by proxy that you have somebody else that's connected to Christ and you kind of live through them. It's been said in the past there are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. What it means by that is that 
In God's family, everyone has to come into a relationship. But personally, you can't depend on your parents' faith. It can't be a ceremonial connection where you're just there. In fact, part of this vine imagery in the Old Testament was all about the fact that they were trusting in their ceremony. And God was like, without me, the ceremony doesn't matter. That you can have all the traditions in the world, but if the traditions aren't connected to the source of Jesus, to the source of God Almighty, then they do not matter. You can have a church on every corner of America, but if those churches aren't connected to the life-giving source of God, then those churches are not being fruitful for the kingdom of God. There has to be a personal connection. It has to be something that is deep and real. And it is not just something where you thought something as a child, but it hasn't manifested itself in your life. It has to be a connection to Christ. They also, secondly, uh, the people that are truly connected and remaining in Christ are cared for by the Father. I mean, it says it a couple of times in here that, that if you're in Christ, He's going to prune you. And we did a, we're not going to rehash all this. We did an entire series with that verse as kind of the theme verse last year about the ways that God prunes us. So we called it the bonsai way about the idea of pruning a tree to get it to the point where you want it to be, pruning a vine to get it to where you want to be. And we talked about that God will use whatever is necessary to kind of prune us that, and that discipline in our lives shows that we are part of God's family. He'll use His Word or relationships or private disciplines or difficulty and problems in our lives. He'll use the circumstances of our lives. People that are truly remaining in Christ are connected to Him personally. They are cared for by the Father, the Master Gardener, and they are consistent over time. Not that you won't have highs and lows in your walk with Christ, but the highs and lows will show a consistent pattern of faithfulness to Him. The main command of this entire passage is that we are to remain in Jesus and what comes out of that, which is a kind of a command that in other places that are there, and it references the command within this passage, is that as we remain in Jesus, we should bear fruit. Verse 5, verse 7, and verse 16 all remind us that this is the goal of Christianity, of following Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, but you can do nothing without me. Verse 7 says it this way, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, you ask whatever you want, it will be done. My Father is glorified by this. How do we glorify God? How do we show glory to our Father in heaven? We do it by producing much fruit. Proving to be His disciples. And then verse 16 towards the end says, You did not choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to do what? To go and produce fruit and that your fruit should remain. If we are connected to Christ, our lives will bear fruit. In Jesus' world, they didn't have sophisticated horticulturists. They could analyze soil samples and take into the lab shavings of a particular plant or a tree and determine the health or the well-being of the tree. They had one simple way to tell whether or not a plant or a tree was alive. 
That was to see, does it bear fruit? Does it blossom? Some people in our area are a little concerned about the plants that you may have around your house. Because of the extreme cold we had this year, there's some some concern that some of those did not make it through. You know how we will know? I mean, you may be one of those that takes the soil samples and does all that, but you know how I will know if my plants survived or not? If they bloom. It's a simple thought, right? How do you know if something's healthy? How do you know if something's alive? Well, you look at the fruit it produces. It's the same truth for those of us that claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. How do you know whether or not we are believers? You look at the fruit. And it ought to be in kind and like Jesus. Four things that it mentions in this passage alone that ought to be the kind of fruit we bear. Answered prayer, obedient love, inexhaustible joy, and sacrificial love. Book of Galatians, it reminds us that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here, it gives it in a little different way, but the idea is similar, that it is answered prayer. And that's because our connection to the Father reminds us of our need to pray and gives us the ability to see it when He does. Now, let me just tell you, this is not a manipulative kind of way where you demand of God something and God has to provide. This is because of the closeness of your relationship, your able to understand when and how he answers your prayer, even if it is not in the way you expected. Obedient love. Jesus is the ultimate example of that. He is literally about to go to the cross in obedient love to the Father. And it says in this passage that if we are bearing fruit, it will include loving one another, but it will also include loving out of obedience because of our relationship with God. That there is inexhaustible joy, that our lives ought to bubble over with joy and gladness and goodness. That doesn't mean in the midst, as we've talked about even today, that in the midst of real difficulty, We don't take a moment and we sit in sadness and we cry and we weep. But we weep as those who have hope. We cry as those who have hope. We understand that the joy that is within us is far stronger than anything this world can bring our way. Bearing fruit is sacrificial love. Here it's described as laying down your life for your brother. Being willing to do it for your friend. There's that interesting moment when he says, I don't call you anything but friend now. That's who you are because we've walked through this together. You know what's going on. You are my friend. A few years ago, led a young man to Christ here at this church. We prayed over in the fireside room. Had a good conversation before that about it. And at the end, he says, so can you guarantee me I'm saved now? First of all, as a pastor, I am still human. It is not my ability to declare salvation upon someone. That is the Lord and the Lord's alone. Amen. And so in that moment, what I said to him in a gifting from God at the moment was, I'll be better able to tell you that question in 10 years than I can right now. Let me see the fruit that comes from your life. Remain in Jesus, bear fruit, and here's the last one that is in the midst of this. Be warned. 
You see, in the midst of this is lots of discussion about pruning from the Father, tender care from the Father. The picture there, by the way, of the pruning is not like what I do with loppers and like just it is intimate cutting away of things that are problematic. But there's also a picture in this passage of Scripture that shows us another side of this, and that is people that believe that they are connected to Christ who are not that are not producing fruit, that are not connected to the life-giving source of Jesus, and it says that they will be cut off. Here's what it says, in fact. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them in the fire, and they are burned. Not, not that you have to make your imagination stretch real far to get this imagery. Um, this is the picture that was used throughout Scripture of those that were outside of God's family that would be thrown into a place of fire that would consume them eternally. That is the picture here. And so this isn't like a, a brief little kind of thing, like make sure you check yourself back into this and you can kind of get in and out of this. This is make sure you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are cut off and burned, it is a permanent thing. Now, what does that mean for us? What it means for us is Jesus is saying to a group of people that are there in immediate context, stay with me, remain with me, stay here. You're going to bear fruit. But if you don't, if you prove not to be a follower of me, your destiny is destruction. And we know that at least one person in that room would experience that quickly, right? Because Jesus' betrayer is there, has been with him the whole time, and in that moment he will betray Jesus a few short minutes, couple of hours he'll betray Jesus. For us the question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus that is bearing fruit? And by bearing fruit, I don't mean that you show up at church, although that is definitely something that needs to happen. I don't mean that you, you walk down an aisle when you were young, although there are many people that in the moment of walking down the aisle, they are expressing that they have established a relationship with Jesus. The question is, is your life bearing fruit because of your relationship with Jesus? And if not... You need to examine whether or not you are truly connected to Christ and whether you have been saved. D.A. Carson, writing about this passage, says this, There is a persistent strand of New Testament witness that depicts men and women with some degree of connection with Jesus or with the Christian church, who nevertheless, by failing to display to grace of perseverance, finally testify that the transforming life of Christ, that's an unfortunate uh, typo there, has never pulsated within them. Don't let the typo make you miss the message. Billy Graham is famous for saying, and it depends on where you look, how, what the percentage is, that his belief that in the normal American church that gathers on a Sunday morning in our country, that 60 to 70% of them are unsaved. And I would not be doing my job as your pastor, as the 
shepherd that God has placed over this church, the under-shepherd of the good shepherd. If I didn't warn you that if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, not your name on a church roll, not a Sunday school attendance record, not that you do good things every once in a while, I mean a relationship with Jesus Christ that is producing fruit that looks like and is in kind with who Jesus is. That if that is not who you are, if that's not what your life shows, that I would be irresponsible not to say to you, make sure you are saved. That is the warning that comes in this passage. When you think about the life of Judas, he walked just as closely with Jesus as anybody in this group. He saw the miracles of God. He participated in them. He was entrusted with the finances of the group, which meant that he was trusted. And yet in the end, his life proved that he had not truly believed. Now, for you, that may not mean an ultimate betrayal on this earth, but I would hate for you to enter into the judgment of eternity having not dealt with the reality of the question of whether or not you are a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, when you look back on the claims of Jesus that we have seen from his mouth about who he is, let's put him back up there. The bread of life, the door, the resurrection life, the vine, the light of the world, the good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life. When you look at those, you can come to no other conclusion, knowing that he is putting the statement, I am, just like God did with when he announced his name, Yahweh, that I am what I am. Jesus is claiming to be God Almighty and the only way to the Father and the only way that we can produce fruit. Without him, we can do nothing. Not something, not a little bit, not less. Nothing means nothing. And it was these claims that led C.S. Lewis, one of the most famous works that he did, to lay down the law of what we have. Jesus claimed to be God. His claim is either true or false. That's it. That's what you got. If it is true, then ipso facto, he is God. If it's true, he's God. And if it's false, then either he said it knowing it was false, in which case he is a liar, or he said it not knowing it false, in which case he was mad. Therefore, we are left with three logical options. He is either God or a liar or a lunatic. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is either God worthy of everything you have in your life or he is not to be worried about at all. Would you bow with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment and in this time that you 
would speak to our hearts. Give us an understanding of what you want us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.